Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was Sunday, September 1, 1996. And on a cold, rainy afternoon in Belmore, the Canterbury Bulldogs put on nine tries in a 50-22 win over the North Queensland Cowboys, a game which ended the season for both sides. Injury riddled and down the five representative stars who had left the club for the ARL, the last round victory was not enough to propel the reigning premiers to the semi-finals. Holding a beer in the dressing room after the game stood the greatest player in the club's history, celebrating the end of a remarkable career. After 350 games in 17 years in the top grade, Terry Lamb's job was finally done. This is part two of the Optus Cup, the 30th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Yeah, wonderful. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. Really enjoying this trip down memory lane. And judging by some of the comments we've received from the listeners, I think quite a few of you are. It's bringing up a lot of memories for people who were there at the time. The preparation for these episodes, watching all the, the highlights of 96, it was quite a fun season, really. Yeah, I've been surprised too along the way. And a lot more revelations for both of us over the rest of this chapter. So we might just get straight into it. So in part one, we looked at the bigger picture about the game and tried to put it in the context of the time and the culture in Australian rugby league in 1996. For the rest of this chapter, we're going to be turning our attention to the situation on field. So to open, we've got to give a brief recap of something we dealt with earlier uh, in this season of the war, which was the round one forfeit of all the Super League clubs, which meant that the Premiership was getting underway with a whimper, not a bang. So you'll remember that that was on a Friday night in Wollongong, a marquee match between Illawarra and Wests to open the year. (laughs) So a far cry from the Tiki Torches and the Diamond Bronco jerseys in Auckland the previous year. Yeah, what a comparison, eh? So a crowd of nine and a half thousand between the teams who had finished 1995 in 12th and 13th respectively. It really kind of laid the foundations for this, you know, in-between year, you know, (laughs) where the game was very far from being back together. I reckon that's quite a good crowd considering. Well, it actually was the Steelers' biggest crowd for the year, so it didn't get much better from them. I I didn't want to open it this way, Uh, you know, apologies to... Steelers fans right at the top, especially our favourite Steelers fan, Kyle. Hope you enjoy this one, mate. But I didn't start here to bag out the Steelers or Wests, and we're going to talk about Wests later in the chapter, who had a fantastic year. But Mm. I think we need to discuss this Illawarra season, which was a very bad one for them on field and off. So they finished in 14th for the year. As I said, that opening round match was the best crowd they had all year. So it was a real struggle for them. In saying that, if your competition hinges on the success of Illawarra's season. (laughs) (laughs) 
So there were some bright spots for Illawarra. So we saw the debut of Trent Barrett, who I guess 1997 was the year that he really went on with it and was, you know, viewed as one of the brightest prospects in the game. But he made his debut in 1996. You were hearing a lot about some other young Steelers players. I was surprised how much I was seeing the name Glen Eyre in the Rugby League Week and in the newspapers that year. But It's a great name there. Yeah, yeah. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and so it kind of goes back to the Graham Murray situation we discussed in 1995 with Murray seeing the team he had, the players that were coming through and thinking, you know, they were onto a good thing here if they could just stay together. Yeah. But that was going to be tough because of the problem that had plagued them from the start, which was money. They never had enough of it. And there was always that fear that their best players were going to be picked off. So coach Alan McMahon had a great quote. We don't want to be breeding players for everyone else. But when it comes to money, we don't finish in the top 20. (laughs) Well, that's a problem. There's only 20 clubs. When there's only 20 teams, that is a problem. And, you know, maybe some of those money problems were out of their hands, but Illawarra did themselves no favours with some of their actions during the season. So key of that was a performance appraisal by Chief Executive Bob Millward on their coach, Alan McMahon, which was a scathing review of his abilities and the rumour, which was later proved founded, that McMahon would be pushed out the door, which, you know, this is the game we're in. It happens all the time. The problem is when you are strapped for cash, you're finding it hard to retain players because of that. You sign a coach on a three-year deal for $750,000 and then halfway through the first season of that deal, you make the decision to move him on and look elsewhere for 1997. I've never understood it how they can do that and they've been doing it since 1908. It's incredible. So Tony McGahey in Big League, you know, he doesn't miss with his comments. He said... My word, that was certainly a thorough and detailed report to the Steelers board on the perceived shortcomings of coach Alan McMahon. Seems to me they should have been as thorough and detailed with their homework and coaching interviews before they signed McMahon. That would have saved a lot of money and embarrassment for a board that's supposed to have strained finances, but are able to reach a decision to pen a three-year deal worth around $750,000, plus the package of 100000 for assistant coach Peter Walsh. Now, there was a business decision to make Kerry Packer envious. Can you believe it? Sign a coach for three seasons and an assistant, then two-thirds away through the first year, consider a recommendation to pay them out. Do you think this was personal slight-based, this clearly vindictive report against McMahon? Because it's so embarrassing for the board, as McGay says. It has to be some sort of personal slight where he's like, I'm going to get rid of him at all costs. You kind of think so, eh? Because especially if you're a club like Illawarra, who in their 14-year history to that point, their name wasn't synonymous with success. You know, they've been battlers from the start. And it seems like if it was just coaching, you know, they probably would have stuck with it for another year. So I think you're onto something that maybe there was some, you know, personal matters or friction between the coach and the board. But I feel like we've just, in the two decades or so since this happened, it's happened so many times that we're just conditioned to think that it's normal and acceptable. But like, I think that any front office that wants to make a move like this should only be allowed to do so if it's accompanied by their own resignation letters. Absolutely. I mean, I know we talk about the past with this series, but in a general thought, is anyone going to take up my idea of signing coaches on a one-year rolling contract idea? Yeah. (laughs) Because 
it's so uh, tenuous. Why not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And especially when it's an unproven coach. Yeah. You know, I mean, if Craig Bellamy decides that he wants to leave Melbourne, then I think whoever wants to snap him up would probably be best to offer him more than one year. Yeah. But if it's, you know, 90% of other coaches, unless you're prepared to commit for the long haul, then it's just ludicrous how often we've seen this happen. But in the guppy-brained decision of the year, which uh, thank you, RIP to Greg Rowden, but I think I'm going to have to insert that into every episode from here. I love it. But um, (laughs) after it was announced that McMahon was going, there were rumours swirling that if the appeal failed in court, they would bring Graham Murray back to coach for 1997. Thank God for the mighty Mariners that didn't happen. (laughs) Which, even if you think he's the best man for a job, like surely the egg on your face having to make that move would, you know, mean it wasn't worth it. Well, give the Illawarra board one um, positive rating. It's for putting the club before their perceived embarrassment. (laughs) But I think it says something about Murray as well, like the way he exited the club. Instead of, you know, torching the joint on his way out, he, you know, said there were no hard feelings, asked if anyone wanted to go for a beer. And, you know, just kind of took his sacking like a man. He's just such a great rugby league guy. I know, eh? Between him and Peter Mulholland in in this series, there's not too many better blokes. Yeah, absolutely. But it meant that the Steelers had four coaches in the space of three years, with Murray out in 1995, replaced by Alan Fitzgibbon for the rest of the year, McMahon in for 1996, and then Farrah in for 1997. So... When you're having money problems, little on-field success, it makes people question your long-term viability. And well, Can I just ask, mate, like, where do you come up with the money to pay this out? I don't know how that works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like practically, where does the money come from? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's just, you know, a leagues club grant that was earmarked for somewhere else is now having to go into this or sponsor money that was going to like really help the club is now just funneled in to this and the club, you know, can never you know, get back on its feet. If I was sponsoring a team, I'd be having that clause in there. No wasteful payouts. Yeah. (laughs) But so in the wake of all this and, you know, question marks over the Steelers' future, Bob Millwood was adamant at this point that there would be no amalgamation talks. And he said, we started this in 1981 when we told the league they needed to expand beyond Hornsby and Sutherland. We'd hate to be victims of our own enterprise. (laughs) That last line, what are you talking about? Victims of your own enterprise. It's your own lack of enterprise since 1982. Is that the best victim slash siege mentality you've ever heard in the league? Like, just say I had that quote in my notes unattributed. I would have just assumed it was a Porky Morgan line or someone else at the Broncos. (laughs) Not the chief executive of the team who came into the league broke and stayed broke for 15 years. Did you say you hope Kyle enjoys this episode? (laughs) We came out strong. I didn't mean to be this harsh about the Steelers because to me, (laughs) this isn't about the Steelers. Like this is pretty much how every rugby league club is run. (laughs) So, you know, they're competing in this instance, but, you know, we could go through the history of rugby league clubs and damn almost every one of them. Like that line there, I think that sums up the series. If you're trying to explain the rugby league culture, that line says it all. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But we might move on from the Steelers, and I think that sets the table nicely for this episode because we're not going to be discussing the premiers or the semi-finalists in this episode. It's going to be about the also-rans. So I'll just quickly 
you know, run through the table as it finished in 1996. So your minor premiers were Manly. The rest of the top eight were the Broncos, Norths, the Roosters, Cronulla, Canberra, St. George, and Wes in eight. Amazing. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to discussing that West season in particular. So West finished a game clear of Newcastle in ninth. And then you had four other teams like all battling out, you know, so Newcastle were on 23, Canterbury, Auckland, and the Tigers all finished on 22, Parramatta on 21. And from there, you had a bit of a drop and you really get to, you know, the bottom end of the table. So you had Illawarra, then Penrith, the Reds, the Cowboys, Gold Coast, Souths, and the Crushers in last spot. So the Crushers had three wins for the year. I feel so slow for them, but I saw some of their highlights and they actually look good in parts. It goes back to the Illawarra thing with the Crushers. So by 1996, they were unable to pay their players. They were, you know, going into receivership. The money problems of the Crushers, we will get to another day. That's not the story we're telling in this episode. But how can you succeed where you're a year in to existence and you're already broke? <laughs> it's insanity. It's madness. But, I mean, that's exactly what happened when Illawarra entered the league. In Perth, the Reds were experiencing the same thing. Like, it's it's something that just seems to happen and be accepted. Well, I can give Perth some sort of a pass, given that it's an experimental area, et cetera. But in mm. Brisbane? <laughs> yeah, it's unacceptable. But as I said, we're going to delve into the off-field situation of the Crushers at a later point in this story. But... For this episode, we're going to restrict it to on-field. Probably the biggest moment for the Crushers in 1996 was the match against the Broncos, which saw, you know, a crowd of 35,000. So, you know, a really positive sign there. The match had some extra heat given that in the lead-up, Crushers players Trevor Gilmeister, Tony Hearn and Terry Cook said that Super League players who didn't come back and play should go to jail. <laughs> And their next biggest crowd was towards the end of the season, which effectively became a spoon-off against the Cowboys in Townsville. Again, it speaks of the spirit and the passion of the Cowboys fans that yeah. in a year where, you know, wooden spooners in 1995 and won, you know, six games in 1996, they were still packing out the stadium on a regular basis. And the Cowboys' relative success in this era really paints Souths in a bad light. So they finished second last in 1996, won five games for the year. We talked about their crowds last week, abysmal. Started the season 0-8, and eight, ended the season 0-6, and six, and then ended 1997 on a nine-game losing streak. So just abysmal. Yeah, but it was the era of the have-nots, and it was sad to watch. Yeah, yeah, really sad. One of those have-nots that actually had a pretty decent season was the Tigers, who... Yeah. You know, finished 12th, but we're in semi-final contention for much of the year. And, you know, at a time when they weren't expected to do anything, it was a real achievement. It seemed like they've always been the pretty average squad playing above their um, ability to make a run at best since the Phillips era. Yeah, that's totally true. And when you look at the squad in this year, it was very average outside of Tim Brasher, who we'll talk about a bit later, had a great season. Ellery Hanley, um, you know, long-time listener Kyle Katasi, when we spoke about Ellery Hanley last time, said he was actually really good in 1996, but just no one saw it because the Tigers were hardly on TV. Interesting. And the season review that um, we'll post a link to on our social media 
Again, Sea Eagles fan, it's a three-hour-long compilation of news clips from the year, but you got to see Ellery a bit in that, and, like, yeah, he did look really good. He had that older man's filled-out body when their game changes, when they get a bit bigger and and stronger and slower. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But, you know, with the football brain to be able to, you know, do better than what his body should have. The Tigers squad was also helped by the fact that Paul Surinan was still there. So he... In a profile in Rugby League Week in 1996, he revealed that he basically agreed to a deal with Cronulla starting in 1995. And he was all but gone, but Keith Barnes asked him about it and, you know, he was kind of equivocal and said he might stay. So Keith Barnes then went around the club and announced that he was staying. So that was all (laughs) Paul Sirena needed to, you know, backflip on his decision. Those old administrators know how to manipulate so well. But it's also it's a testament to Ciro because in that same profile, he basically admitted that he wasn't thinking about finals football and it was a nice surprise to see them having the good season they were in 1996. Like for a player, you know, who'd achieved so much, had been to grand finals, had a chance to go to a Sharks team that was on the rise and, you know, potentially finish his career with, you know, a premiership or at least regular semifinals, to turn that down knowing that, he was basically consigning himself to finishing out his career playing for a rubbish team. Like that says something about him, eh? Man's man, yeah. I'm so glad he didn't go. Like just it's mm. I mean, he hasn't got the premiership, he's got the one club respect. Uh and the Warriors started their several decade long run of fighting out between eighth and twelfth on the ladder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, actually, they started that the year before. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They continued their uh, their runs of the mediocrity. <laughs> yeah, finishing 11th, that's a bit disappointing. Yeah, so another disappointing season for the Warriors. And from there, we might move on to discussing other things. I thought it'd be interesting to look at the awards season to give you a little glimpse as to the state of the game in 1996, who the top players were and you know what the situation was. So... I'll read out the Dallium team of the year. So the Dallium winner was Alan Langer, followed by Laurie Daly and Jim Dimmick. The team of the year was Tim Brasher at fullback, Noah Andruku winger. ET was the centre, Laurie Daly 5'8", Alan Langer halfback. Jim Dimmick was the lock, David Fairley the second row, Paul Harrigan the prop, uh, and Jim Sedaris at hooker. What surprises me about that team, which is an awesome team, by the way, is uh, Noah Andruku on the winglet. I have it in my head that you know, 93, 94 was the... 95 was the peak and he sort of dropped off after that, but obviously he didn't in 96 and I yeah. don't remember it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it, it stood out for me as well that it was a year with no real head scratches. You know, one year will be like, you know, Michael Gordon, fullback of the year, and you're like, oh, yeah. really? You know, but this was pretty solid across the board. I've got to stat at Langer in the season recap packages. You just see the class. He was moving from young Langer to older, uh, thicker, elder statesman Langer in this period. He had the best of yeah, both yeah. worlds. But he was amazing, yeah. Every single highlight of the Broncos, like every match, it was, it was Langer who was winning it for them. And so he, to go with his Dalliem, he also won the Big League and Rugby League Week Player of the Year awards. The only major award he missed out on was the Rothmans, which was won by Jason Taylor in what, as it turned out, was the last Rothmans medal due to the ban on cigarette sponsorship. It wasn't the one that um, was fixed. <laughs> that no, no. That, yeah, so that, that was uh, David Fairley in 1994. <laughs> so Fairley actually came runner-up to Jason Taylor, his North's teammate, in 1996. 
in addition to winning the Dallium Second Rower of the Year award. I had no idea he was playing that good in 96 either. I mean, I always think 94 is the fairly year, obviously, the Kangaroo Tour. This is what I want to talk about. Like, it's a really interesting career for David Fairley, which you could read it a couple of ways. And I'd love to get the perspective of some Bears fans on this. You know, maybe Paul Mack can help us out on this. So he wins the Rothmans in 1994, goes on the Kangaroo Tour, is considered one of the top forwards in the game. But he didn't play Origin that year, so he played all three games in 1993, was left out for 1994 before, you know, getting kangaroo selection, comes back for the 1995 Origin series, left out again in 1996, and then comes back for 1997. It's pretty clear that Gus didn't rate him. Yeah. And, and like, he was just such a handful in every game he played. The size of the man, the athleticism, just his head alone. Yeah. Break tackles. (laughs) But... You could see a few like cryptic comments by Fairley throughout the year and think it was basically supported by Gus that for whatever reason, Gus just didn't rate him. So, you know, he picked him in 95 when he had no Super League players to choose from. 1996, he was out again because, you know, Gus could, you know, have his pick. And then with Tommy Ronicus coming into coach in 1997, Fairley was back in. And you just think about how the opinion of one man of influence can affect the legacy of a player. Like it's the same thing with, with Trevor Gilmeister. You know, Bozo didn't rate him, so he didn't make his Australian debut till 1995. When we talk about Nathan Blacklock, like we have at length in our Hall of Fame stuff as well. Like it's, yeah. You just don't think about it in professional sport. There's these kingmakers. It's just, it really sucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so with Fairley, we're left with this career that, you know, it's pretty much Hall of Very Good. I don't think he's going in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, he had a successful career, played for Australia, played for New South Wales. It's a career that I really respect and uh, admire. And when he came to Newcastle at the end of his career, I was very happy. And there was a certain uh, Newcastle Uni professor that got a um, Central Coast Bears uh, proposal, which had him as as a signing (laughs) due to his local junior status. (laughs) So it makes you wonder if it had been a different coach in or if Gus did rate him and he's got an extra six origins, does that elevate him to that next level? Or alternatively, is he kind of lucky to have his career in the Super League era and he got six more origins than he might have otherwise? Well, he must have had deficiencies defensively or something because his attack was Mm. unstoppable. I always rated him as like the sort of new Syrenin. Yeah, I mean, he definitely had that rap, but then I feel like the rap fell away pretty quickly and maybe that's just because of everything going on with the game. Like, it's hard to recall who were considered the standout players in, you know, like 97, 98. Yeah, true. But regardless, I'm sure the merits of Fairley and other players were discussed at the Rothmans Medal Awards that night, which was known as a, you know, pretty wild night on the rugby league calendar. It was always looked forward to by the old heads as well as the current players. And, <laughs> you know, some some great stories have come out of the Rothmans over the years. This last one was a bit of a fizzer by all reports. So some of the old timers there were mortified with one report saying, some of the hardheads were unimpressed at the bar closed at 11. As one veteran cried in his beer, it's the first time I've ever had to buy a drink at the Rothmans and I'm filthy. (laughs) We talked about it in the last ep about respecting the old players. It's very easy to do. Open bar till they want to leave. How much can a keg of twoies cost? I mean, Jesus. Yeah, it's all you got to do. 
Uh, Mahatma Coat was on hand to deliver the laughs Thank God. at the event. <laughs> at one point, he saw Mick Stone and asked how his daughter Sharon Stone was. To which Mick Stone, it's a pretty gross comment, but I give him credit for humor because I wouldn't have picked it from Mick Stone. But he said, "If she's my daughter, I'm guilty of mental incest." <laughs> You need, uh, I don't know if they give the Walkley for this podcast or some other award, but some of the quotes you've dug out, you need to be awarded. It's amazing. And the lameness of the party led some journalists at the time to reflect on Wilder Nights at Rothman's previous. So a Roy Masters column talked about the night and said, The game is clearly not the same. There was no repetition of the infamous Hilton Hotel incident when Johnny Raper, seeking to assist the league official involved in a fight, accidentally clocked a visiting Texan billionaire. <laughs> but that sentence, I mean, what was a league official doing in the fight? <laughs> That's just gloss This is my favourite thing about it, you know. In this story, it's the fact that it was a billionaire involved in the fight that made it unusual. Like, league officials getting in fights at an awards night is just par for the course. <laughs> And the billionaire was probably just trying to get to his room or something. But <laughs> well, I kind of miss that where, um, you know, in the years to follow, the atrocities that have built up stopped any sort of like glamorizing getting on the drink nights. Yeah, like yeah. When it's league people just amongst themselves, I actually sort of miss that. Yeah, totally. And I was actually trying to find out more about the Johnny Raper Texas billionaire incident. <laughs> But nothing came up. But I did find a Buzz article from a few years ago. I think it was from like 2015 or so, where he was talking about the old days of the Rothmans medal. He did mention an altercation between Johnny Raper and his best mate, John Singleton, that resulted in uh, Singleton headbutting Johnny Raper, drawing blood. But in the same story, he said, your correspondent was once in a push and shove at the old bourbon and beefsteak with an angry little Canberra half that called Ricky Stewart. <laughs> Like, can you imagine if it was, you know, I don't know, James Hooper and Mitchell Moses, for yeah, instance? Yeah. Like, can you imagine what a scandal that would be today? Like, two of my favourite guys ever, Buzz and um, Ricky Stewart. <laughs> can you imagine the eagle in that pre-push-and-shove conversation? <laughs> Singleton's got form on the headbutting as well. Yeah. If you, if you Google that uh, little <laughs> manoeuvre with him, but... um. <laughs> Yeah, but like just hearing the stories, I can feel the electricity in the air. Like the Rothmans is on tonight. So and so is not going to like seeing so and so. I reckon it might be on. You know, like <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The first exactly. scrum. <laughs> yeah, like one story had Steve Folks going up to Mick Stone, who was wearing a powder blue suit and bagging him out. Which um, I like just for the fact that I feel like rugby league players and powder blue suits are so like synonymous in like the seventies <laughs> and eighties. Yeah, and not ironically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I guess the biggest furor of the night was the decision of the Raiders to not turn up to the awards. Petty. It is. And, you know, they were playing a semi-final against the Dragons on the weekend. That was their excuse for not going, which is fair enough. But it doesn't cut it. You know, like these days, you know, the team just wouldn't show up. But in this era, like everyone else showed up, like they could have sent non-playing squad members, which was, you know, the customary thing. It's what they'd done in previous seasons when they had semifinals on. I mean, we've said it before, all sphere in love and war, but everyone else is making some sort of an effort, just bloody swallow some pride and turn up. Yeah, exactly. And John Quayle was vitriolic about the no-show. He said, 
Everyone else has got on with the game this year, but Canberra have consistently put themselves above the game. And this is another example of that. We can't make anyone come and perhaps they see their preparations as more important. But for no one at all from the club to attend, well, it's an insult to the award and to the club. (laughs) It's an insult to the cigarette. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Ricky Stewart, when asked about it, so Stewart was out for the year. So he is one of those players who could have attended. And he said, I can't go because I've got a family commitment. But if they're going to cause a big scene over it, then I suppose I might have to consider pulling the pin. I'd have to talk it over with Kevin Neal and see what he says. Which, you know, that comment makes you think that it was a directive from above about the Raiders not appearing. So that was the Rothmans. I also wanted to look at the Rugby League Week players poll of that year. So the headline, I guess, is that Brad Fittler, for the first time, took the title of best player in the game, taking it off Laurie Daly. And he was playing lock, right? Yeah. My favorite position for Fred. Same. And Freddie's another one who I've had to have a reappraisal of since starting this series because I thought he was overrated. I thought he was a good player, but I never considered him the best player in the world. And watching him play in this era, he really was electric. And I didn't give him his due at the time, but I think it's probably about right that he was you know, making that leap at this point. He was always top, top echelon, very, very good. I didn't think he was the best player in the world until elder statesman Freddie. Mm. And I think the thing is that in this era, he, you know, claimed the title, but then very quickly, Joey really came on and, you know, Lockyer emerged and, you know, he started to get overshadowed a bit by some of the other players reaching their peaks. But I think Daly and Langer were above him here still. I agree too, yeah. The other interesting thing I saw in this poll was fullback of the year, which was won by Tim Brasher with 72% of the vote, Brett Mullins next best with 18%. That was like almost a complete reversal from the previous two years where in 1995, Mullins got 78% of the vote. In 1994, he got 70% of the vote. So I don't want to relitigate the Mullins Hall of Fame issue again, but it is telling (laughs) in terms of the apex of his career. It just goes to show what a career Brescia had and still somehow underrated. Absolutely. Like incredible career and great player. Another one that stands out in any highlight you see and I don't think he gets his due. To me he's the definition of the one when a young person will ask their fifty year old father or uncle, what was he like? I mean he was a good player. Just universally yep. he's a good player. Yeah, totally. And he was leading the rugby league week players poll halfway through the season and, you know, was the key reason for Balmain being in finals contention for much of the year. So fantastic player, Tim Brasher. Uh, another player you know, back in form for 1996 was Glenn Lazarus, who got 84% of the vote, which is pretty phenomenal. Well, you know, my thoughts on Lazo, and I think he's closer to a mortal status than some of the people's names that are banded about for it. Mm. I think when we talked about 1995, we talked about him having a slow start to the, the year and, you know, being out of shape, out of form, but he really got it back in 1996. So, 1995, he was also the pick for prop of the year with 32% of the vote. In 1994, Harrigan had gone past him and had the title at 57%. So to not only like get the title back off Harrigan in 1995, but then go on with it so much that, you know, 84 out of 100 players picked him as the best prop, like, um, you know, fair effort. Just one of those guys that wherever he went, winning followed. Like wherever yeah. Kevin Campion went, improvement and toughness followed. Mm, mm, so true. Uh, just a couple of odd ones that stood out to me. I always love questions like this. Which player has the shortest fuse? <laughs> so 
This was an award that Michael Hancock had had a mortgage on in, in the years before 1996, but he lost the title to, uh, it was a dual award of Gary Freeman and Mark Geyer, each polling 28%. A couple of worthy uh, recipients, but think about that award. If you have a short fuse, to read that it would set you off really quickly. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's funny because when you look at uh, 1995, Michael Hancock won the award with 13%. In 1994, he won it with 19%, meaning that the most popular choice would be other. You know, there were probably like 20, 25 players who picked a player who, you know, didn't get enough votes. Um, But the fact that he got 28% of the vote, I mean, MG kind of speaks for himself. And yes, Gary Freeman was known as as an angry ant, but I wonder what was going on with him this year that like you know his fuse was even shorter than normal <laughs> just the thought of those do cracks me up but <laughs> i really miss the rugby league week place poll with the divisive questions because especially the most overrated and although it's um, negative and it's harsh and embarrassing for the player that gets it it's how they talk amongst themselves in the game yeah 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 it gave the fans this inside peek into what they really thought yeah, it was really illustrative. And I understand the reason they, you know, canned that question eventually. It, it just became too negative in the end. It was hanging over blokes' heads too much. But yeah, in the early days, it was just like, oh, you, you read that, ha, ha, ha. But uh, yeah, I really like the candid questions in that poll. I really miss Rugby League Week today because I'd love to see this question asked now. So they asked, do Channel 9 have too much influence in the running of the game? And it was 65% yes. no. I'd love to see the results of that question today and, you know, with Fox added to the mix as well. Well, I'll tell you what the answer would be. It would be two different answers. Nine viewers would say yes and KO viewers would say no because they don't care anymore about nine. But I think even if you don't watch Channel 9, which I don't other than, you know, the four times a year it's mandated, you can still see the influence they have on the scheduling and, you know, Mm. even expansion and all these other things. Like, I don't think you have to watch it to know the way they direct how the game is run. I reckon in the ACT region, there'd be a 99% yes. But 1996 was also the last year for a number of players in the game. So I thought we'd just have a you know mini Hall of Fame segment. Long-time listeners will know that our Hall of Fame was a disaster. Uh, you know, That's a bit harsh. I call it ad hoc. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we really struggled to nail down those criteria for entry, but we had a lot of great chats in the process. So I thought we'd just look <laughs> at the retiring class of 1996. Well, I'm going to defend the Hall of Fame, the early Hall of Fame. The criteria was Bruce Lee-esque, like water. <laughs> but this series has made me really want to like reappraise our opinions of so many players that we, you know, dealt harshly with in the era. But in the meantime, I've broken down the retiring players of 1996 into uh, a few different tiers. So. I'll read you my tiers and just, you know, you can weigh in as to whether I've got it right or not. So I had one lock for the Hall of Fame in 1996, and that was Terry Lamb. Yeah, undeniable. Yeah, one of the great careers, you know, to paraphrase Fatty. (laughs) I put put, uh, Gary Freeman as a near certainty. And and I think the case for Gary Freeman illustrates, you know, one of the problems for the game in general. First things first, where do you stand on Gary Freeman as a Hall of Famer? I think he makes it based on the test record and everything like that. But um, 
I never liked him as a player, to be honest. And this is the hard thing. Like, he does make it on the back of his test career, you know, his status as a New Zealand legend. His Australian club career is fine. You know, he's got those grand final appearances. He's got the Dalian in 1992. Yeah, can't knock that. But, like, that career in itself isn't Hall of Fame worthy. He's got, like, this, you know, incredible New Zealand career. Well, if you want a Dalian, you've got to be pretty well certain to be there, haven't you? Well, is Matt Orford a Hall of Famer? Yeah, true. You know, I think there's a number of Dalian winners that aren't Hall of Famers. You'd be close, though. It gets you close. Yeah, yeah, true. But the thing about Gary Freeman getting in on his New Zealand credentials is what does that mean for players who, you know, played all or most of their careers, you know, overseas? Like, you know, what about like, you know, Richie Blackmore or whoever you could name? Like, if they don't have an Australian career, does the NRL not consider them for the Hall of Fame? But if they do have an Australian career, are you then factoring in New Zealand records? What I'm going to say is going to be very insulting, and it's really based on the fact that I only just didn't like Freeman because he wasn't my type of halfback. I like an organising halfback, you know. But he had some great seasons, and the guy played, what, 40-odd tests for New Zealand or 50 tests yeah. or something. I think he had the record until Ruben Wiki. But the insulting thing I'm about to say is, like, who was fighting for that seven jersey for the Kiwis? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a tough one. Like, ultimately, I think he makes it kind of as an icon, more so than, you know, his ability or his actual career. And those, like, his peak years were in our young lives. So. Yeah, yeah. i got to say, though, just um, last thing on Freeman, I really liked him as a commentator. Me too. Yeah, I thought he always added a lot. I liked having him there. He wasn't a fence sitter, and it was good analysis. Yeah, totally. Uh, I had, in the probable class, Trevor Gilmeister. What are your opening thoughts there? Is he getting a bump up because of personality? Because he's so yeah. charming. <laughs> I think he is. I think because he's just so, like, everyone loves Trevor Gilmeister. Iconic Queensland career. You know, we spoke about it earlier. He's not really being rated by Bozo, which meant that he didn't have a test career that he might have. Key part of the Broncos premierships. Well, I'll tell you what, like, I think he does make it based on that and the 95 origin. Yeah. And then also, like, starting his career... You know, with that 87 Roosters team that, you know, had a great year. Then to go on, become a Queensland legend, Broncos premiership winner, 95. I kind of think he's in. I think he's done enough. But he's also got that stardust with the, um, in defense, the iconic tackling. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, he makes my haul. I think Rabs has given him a leg up too with the Yulmeister and the Origin special, you know. Mm. And um, Hall of Fame head as well. <laughs> I think I've said it before on Gilmeister, but I love any player who, like every kangaroo tour from 1908 through 1994, there's a head like Trevor Gilmeister. <laughs> yeah, like it's funny, it's the, the feeling they give you, right? Like mm. the feeling you get from him is positive. The feeling you get from Wiz is um, negativity, niggle and um, <laughs> like back chatting. And- but that kind of helps as well. It gives him a, a personality and a like everyone who watched him has an opinion on Gary Freeman, you know, be it good or bad. Uh, so I've got four players in the Hall of Very Good, and I, I want to see if you dissent on any of these players, but uh, John Cartwright, Chris Johns, Mick Potter, and Craig Coleman. I um, dissent on Cartwright immediately. I love John Cartwright. I think he's so mm. underrated. Coleman, I thought, was in the whiz mold of half, and... Um, I know a lot of people that rated him, but I just didn't. Maybe his best years were when I was too young. I didn't really rate him that high. Yeah. Mick Potter, for some reason, 
I tend to missed all his um all his games. I don't know how I missed when he was at the Reds. I saw a couple, and you know, yeah, see yeah. much at the Dogs. I saw a bit at St George. I think you can speak better on Mick Potter than me. Well, I, when I named my favorite ever Dragons team, I said really like interesting career winning a Dallium at two different clubs. I don't know if anyone else has done that, and you know, known as a great fullback, but probably you know, I missed. His best years. Two Dalians at two clubs is crazy, though. Like- yeah, yeah, I know. And like seven years apart as well. Getting a premiership at the Dragons in either 92 or 93, that might have been enough to put him over the line. Mm. But, I mean, everybody you speak to, older guys, will tell you he was class. Mm. I heard Andrew Leeds compared to him a bit when I was um, younger. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like, solid, dependable, but, you know, no one's buying tickets to see Andrew Leeds or Mick Potter. You know, you love having him in the team, but he's not making a, your hairs stand on end. Well, I don't know how you can have two Dalliams and not make the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, true. Very good point. I think for me, the player who gets closer to that bunch is Chris Johns. I love Chris Johns too. It's just he was tainted by the Super League involvement towards the end. Do you think he got a boost by being the New South Wales, you know, Terry Madison was as well, but being the New South Wales guy at the Broncos, like it kind of like gave him this point of difference he, that every year you're like, oh, Chris Johns, that's so weird. He, you know, he plays for New South Wales, but he's at the Broncos. I think you're right on that. I think you did give him a boost, but I think it was well deserved. If you're getting picked for yeah. origin from another state like that in those days, that was something else. Mm, um, you know, one of the few players who could pull the double duties of player assistant CEO. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's got to help his case. <laughs> Uh, so they were my hall of very good. Uh, I had one player as beloved club stalwart, one of my very favourite players, childhood hero, Ricky Walford, who, one of those players that say the name, everyone's happy. Yeah, I have to look at his stats to go through the Hall of Fame candidacy, but for me, he's a, he's a Hall of Fame in my heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, same. Like, you know, over 100 tries, he played for New South Wales, great finish at the Dragons, you know, could kick goals. Um, you know, excellent player, but... Um, I, I think compared to some of the other wingers in the era and some of the other players around him, I don't think he makes the haul. And that leads to the last category, which is just long, proud career. I don't think either of these three are Hall of Famers, but, you know, great players all the same. Craig Salvatore, Dan Staines, and Paul Dunn. All three are the same uh, breed. Yeah, yeah, totally. Real hard men. Craig Salvatore, you'd probably put in that beloved club stalwart category at the Roosters. You know, he was someone who was there in 87 when they had a good year, but then was there basically for the rest of his career through the lean times. Then Gus comes in, punts him just as they start to get good, and he, you know, kind of finishes his career in an underwhelming South team. Isn't that cruel? But all three men played Origin, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Paul Dunn playing five tests for Australia, or seven tests, actually. Didn't... Dan Staines come to your school, though? <laughs> he did, yep. Dan Staines, uh, I think that was in his Balmain era. He came to my school, so a great day for me was was meeting Dan Staines. Yeah, if they're still not doing that now in this day and age. They need their heads red because I, mean, I still remember when Paul Marquette and uh, Robbie O'Davis come to my school in about 91 or something mm. for Battle of Apples, handing out apples to everybody. Like It's unforgettable for a young school kid when the NRL players come to your school, so I hope they're still doing oh, it. That they are still doing it because my niece, uh, who's 10, she lives in the eastern suburbs and at the start of the year, uh, Angus Crichton and Sam Walker came to her school and, wow. you know, she doesn't know anything about football, but she was so excited to tell me and, you know, 
Angus Crichton was a hit because of his missing finger. The kids <laughs> love that. If there's any better advertisement for the game than that, mm. I'm not here. Yeah, yeah. But so that is the retiring class of 1996. We're going to round out this episode by looking at two clubs in a bit more depth. And they're two sides of the same coin, uh, and that is the coin of the Filthy Four. It's it's Parramatta and Canterbury. So we'll start with the former, who went on a unprecedented splurge in player signings for 1996. Like, Do you remember it in the era? Vaguely, but they've had a couple of these splurges, so they sort of um, meld into one to me in my mind. I think this is the loudest I've I can remember like public outcry about buying a comp. <laughs> it, like for me, it was just everywhere in 1996. Um, Parramatta fans at my school were getting hammered. <laughs> Trying to buy the comp. <laughs> Let me ask you this: Do you think that Parramatta got an easier run in the comp buying insults than Manly did? Yes, but only because they didn't successfully <laughs> buy any comps. You know, I, I think if they had like you know one in 1996 and you know, maybe a couple more over the next few years. I think they would have been like quite hated, but just the fact that it was unsuccessful, I think they're the kind of lovable losers in a lot of people's <laughs> minds, which if the buying comps had been successful, they wouldn't be. I've heard of um, splurging money, but buying a preliminary final, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Fitzgerald's comment on this splurge in 1996 is interesting. He said, when we lost Ray Price, Mick Cronin, Steve Eller, Eric Groth, Peter Sterling, Brett Kenny, Jeff Bugden, Terry Ledbetter, Michael Mosley, we thought our local juniors would emerge and keep us competitive. That has not been the case. We should have looked outside our backyard and scanned young talent from other areas, but I guess we were convinced we had the talent in our own area. And it's interesting to me because if you look at that 2001 team and you know the, the success they had around that time, like basically all the players they bought in 1996 were gone and it was local juniors and, you know, young talent from the bush that gave them that success. You know, like Luke Burt, you know, Jamie Lyon, Nathan Kalis, Hindmarsh, Vela, Mick Butner. Like, I mean, all I think about in this era is, you know, I told you I met the Emperor at one of these comedy, charity mm. comedy gigs. He was a good bloke and uh, me being the cowardly lion didn't say we've been trashing you for 20 years. <laughs> he's giant hands. He's just, he's a good guy. But just thinking about the the misery of the Leeds club that's funded this <laughs> this uh, player aid, just sickens me. And Fitzgerald was actually lucky to see it out because the previous year had seen what would become an annual tradition at Parramatta with an attempted boardroom coup designed to oust him from his position. <laughs> he survived a lot of coups over the years. <laughs> and so this one was actually orchestrated by Jack Gibson and Terry Fernley, who they got involved in this boardroom struggle to elevate a couple of board members. And the understanding was that they would then have a say in the club's decision. But according to Gibson, they were basically ignored. So Gibson had his nose out of joint. Of his plan, Gibson said, I would have saved the club money by trimming some of the people in the front office. Dennis would have gone. His job is at the Leagues Club, and that didn't worry me, but he'd have gone from the football club. Just let him focus on blood money. And uh, <laughs> yeah. But what sort of person uses Jack Gibson to install you and then ignore him? Well, that's low. It is, isn't it? But something telling to me was in that same interview, Gibson said that he thought, Fitzgerald's signing spree in 1996 was 
a distraction to take the focus off him. Uh, he said, he spent $6 million on the team this year, and if you ask me, the purpose of that team is to keep Fitzgerald in a job. If he wins a championship title, well, that's a bonus. Fitzgerald's philosophy is also if the club wins a game, then the fans will soon forget all about Jack. Nice use of third person there um, <laughs> by Gibson. But at the same time, like, yeah, like the fans won't care if he wins games and he, he wins comps. That's how it works. Just dirty, isn't it? The boardroom reverbially. But I think that comment by Gibson and the fact that he went on to be dismayed about the fact that they had, you know, a sprint coach and a swimming coach and weights coach and all these swimming other things. Coach. That was Jack's words. I don't know if he was being facetious, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was more about the the delegation of responsibilities and, and bringing in specialists for different areas, which is just de rigueur now. But this was, I guess, a, a bridging point to the era we're in now. And, you know, maybe that's a sign that the game was kind of passing Jack Gibson by. I mean, the guy's been around since the 50s, surely it was going to happen yeah. eventually. But <laughs> what about, um, like, do you think Jim Dimmick was uh, was good over the 200 IM? Or? <laughs> I could see him being a, a butterfly specialist, actually. Uh, big shoulders, yeah. So with those recruits, Parramatta spent over $5 million in wages for the year. I think we mainly remember like the ARL refugees. So you had the Filthy Four, you had Aaron Raper, Adam Ritson, Gary Freeman, and Nathan Barnes. Well, Nathan Barnes came from Newcastle, so that wasn't an ARL refugee. But you tend to remember those ones the most. But in addition to those players, there was Rod Maybon coming from the Dragons, Peter Johnston from Illawarra, Stuart Kelly from Gold Coast, Scott Davey from Canterbury, David Anderson coming over from Rochdale, Shane Russell from Balmain, Anthony Bonus there as well. So they had 15 signings for the year. Like, can you imagine that? 15 new recruits in one off-season. Talk about putting a broom through the place. Yeah. I don't think it gets talked about enough how insane that is. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, if we talk to a friend of the show, Ben Darwin, on continuity in um, sports teams and that, that impact on success, it goes to show, doesn't it, given their results? Yeah. And so it's probably no surprise that the season didn't go as well as they may have hoped. So they had teething problems early on. Apparently, when you bring in a completely new squad, it takes time for those players to gel. So that's weird. <laughs> well, it takes squads that have been together for 10 years, five rounds to gel. So. <laughs> but I think because of that outsized expectation, it's easy to remember that season as worse than what it actually was. So it wasn't a terrible season in itself. So, you know, for most of the year, they were hovering at around a 50% win rate. They ended up losing their last three matches to finish 9-11 and 11 with one draw. Well, I don't have any sympathy for that expectation. When you're down at the um, comp emporium flushing money around, yeah. you put a target on your back. <laughs> no, exactly. So I think it's fair that the expectation is there, but I also think it has to be remembered that the season wasn't that bad. It was the best mm. season they'd had in some time. It was just far short of the mark as to what was acceptable. And then when you think about the reasons for that, one of them may have been the coach. And so this was Ron Hilditch's last year as coach with Brian Smith coming in for 1997 and, you know, really getting them on their way. And yes, they didn't go on to win a premiership, but they had some very successful years, you know, from 1997 onwards. Mm. But maybe it wasn't just Brian Smith coming in. Maybe the seeds were planted in an event that took place mid-year with the release of Jared McCracken's book. So Jared McCracken saw the book launch 
as a great opportunity for a bonding session. (laughs) So he said, It can't hurt to have the players get together away from training and let themselves go a bit. This is a chance for the guys to come together and know one another. It's a good day for that. He's just a lunatic, isn't he? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) walking heat magnet. But surely they've got together prior to McCracker's book launch, (laughs) the meet and greet. Well, this is the thing. Like, how many drinking sessions must they have been on together over the course of that year? Yeah. So when does a drinking session become anointed as a bonding session? I think a bonding session has got to be in a room with no distractions, no, like, tab screens or um, shielders or anything yeah. to distract you, just the boys to start flinging some honest assessments around you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think most honesty sessions include a reading from one of the players' books, though. So (laughs) it might be be illustrative as to why it was a failed bonding session in terms of their 1996 season. (laughs) But so on the other side of that equation is the Bulldogs, who, you know, were 1995 premiers that were were going through a period of great destabilisation because of McCracken and, you know, his new teammates at Parramatta, Dean Pay, Jason Smith, and Jim Dimmick. And 1996 was a fresh start for the Dogs in you know more ways than just new players. So they decided to drop the Sydney Bulldogs experiment after one year and were renamed Canterbury Bulldogs. And they also gave up on Parramatta Stadium and went back to Belmore. Can you imagine if they were still at Parramatta Stadium post-Filthy Four? <laughs> yeah, that would have been uh, quite toxic. But funnily enough, the move back to Belmore didn't translate into crowds. You know, as we talked about in part one, they, you know, averaged seven and a half thousand for the year. So poor crowds, a poor start to the season, losing seven of their first eight games and their title defense was in disarray, you know, basically from the moment the season started. You mean to say that fans weren't over the moon to be attending a venue known as the Kennel? (laughs) (laughs) And there was just a bad spirit all round in 1996, which, you know, was certainly true of the dogs as well. So you heard of some internal friction at the club, you know, as always for Canterbury. In one mid-season incident, Chris Anderson copped a one-month ban from Canterbury Leagues Club after an altercation with a couple of club supervisors. (laughs) In his defence, Anderson said, I've been under some pressure lately. I had a few beers and I had a disagreement with the security staff there. There were no fisticuffs, and there's no way I've been suspended. I've apologised, and that's that. <laughs> this was referred to as the modern era of the game in 96, and you've got coaches getting in. <laughs> um, so was this just a, just your average, you've had too much, you got to leave, fight, or was it like, mate, you can't coach? <laughs> I think it was the former, but the details are scant on what actually happened. Uh, there was also rumours of players falling out within the team and Anderson falling out with... Simon Gillies, he dispels that and says, I have a fight with Simon about four times a week. That's just how we operate. (laughs) Great system. But a bigger problem was the way the club was playing and their attitude towards the game. This came to a head at a game against Norths where they went on a bit of a tear towards the referees saying they weren't getting a, a fair go. Norths coach Peter Louie tells the story. My advice to them would be to concentrate on football instead of throwing Super League slang at the referee. 
They were saying, be fair to a Super League team. And you can't do this. You've got to give the Super League team a go. It was continuous. It obviously affected my players. It's the first time I've heard it. My players haven't come off and said that after any other game. Yeah, it's siege mentality vibe, isn't it? And you can tell it's coming from the top because when he was asked about it, all Chris Anderson had to say was, it obviously didn't work. We only got one penalty in the second half. <laughs> the age-old rugby league analysis that penalty outcomes are uh, the be on end or yeah, not the yeah. fact that they only, um, the opposition only committed one penalty. Yeah, yeah. And you could kind of like excuse it as a heat of the moment thing. Like, you know, coaches fly off the handle. It happens, you know. So that was in a post-match interview, in an interview for Gary Lester's book, Dogs of War. So years later, he said, we were in a competition we didn't want to be in and one they didn't want us there. I just remember going to the judiciary four times that year and we got beat up each time. We didn't get one bloke off and we got the maximum penalty each time. Again, nothing about the severity of the offence or you know whether the players deserved it. Just, you know, I didn't get any players off. The paranoia about the judiciary back then was Cold War level. Yeah, I mean, really, it's one of the inciting incidents of the whole thing, if you think back to the way the Broncos carried on throughout 1994. Mm. But it's like they say, a fish rots from the head. And that kind of attitude from the coach, like so often it leads to poor attitude from players on field. And I think that's certainly what happened with the Dogs in 1996. It's a shame too. When the reigning premiers implode, it's never good. Yeah. And Super League tension wasn't restricted to just on field. It was happening in the stands as well. A group we've talked about before, the Super League Action Movement or SLAM, they were, <laughs> even though they were ostensibly a, a broader, you know, Super League advocacy movement, it was very much Bulldogs based. So they got into an argument with ARL ground manager Eric Cox, who apparently banned them from holding their banners up at the games. <laughs> They responded to that by doing some, you know, leaflet bombing in the car park and getting the word out about Super League. How many It's a Free Countries were dropped on that day? <laughs> and that's one thing. Anyone can print off some leaflets and, you know, attach them to cars. But Slam had eyes on a bigger prize and they actually registered as a political party with designs to run a candidate in the Blacksland electorate at the upcoming election. Was Keating still there then? Uh, yeah, but he was on his way out. They're going to replace him with a slam representative. <laughs> so the aim of the slam political party was to introduce a private member's bill in parliament to change the law so that Super League could start. <laughs> Imagine their um, economic policy. Well, once we go to China with the game, the trade deficit's going to be zero. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, just the absolute fallout from this war. We've got a political party based on Super League. I know. I, I love it. But best of all is that like this wasn't like even an Aussies for the ARL level movement. It was basically orchestrated entirely by a guy named Ian Camlet with three of his friends. So basically the entirety of the Super League action movement was four blokes who liked the dogs. <laughs> Great initialism, but slam. Yeah. yeah, totally. And the last bit of Super League tension I'll talk about also involves that Jerry McCracken book, which when it came out was greeted with a book burning at Belmore Oval. 
you know you're onto something good once reading materials are being burnt in a bonfire. That's <laughs> always a good sign any part of the world. <laughs> and maybe it was the book burning that was the spark that Canterbury needed, but they eventually did get their season back on track. They ended up finishing 10th, so a credible effort. They won six of their last seven games uh, and importantly finished three points ahead of Parramatta. So there was at least a moral victory there. (laughs) Parramatta bought a miss the eight. Yeah, yeah. Another bright spot for the Dogs that year was the emergence of Hazamel Masri, who I was surprised, like I was really shocked reading all the reports this year, how much buzz there was about Hazam. And none of it was about his goal kicking. He was just viewed as a really exciting prospect. So Sherlock in the Rugby League Week is illustrative of this. I would like to recall that these beady old peepers have been very taken with the performances of the following. Hazamel Masri. It's a name that'll take a while to roll off the tongue, but this young bulldog is quite a find. A real goal. touching that one. Hand- <laughs> a real goer with good hands, good pace, and plenty of ticker. I was watching the highlights. Um, he was carving up on the wing, but uh, the Channel mm. Nine reporter goes and Hazam El Mazri. Mm. Like, yeah. It was the most impossible name for them to say with the three yeah, syllables. Know, and- the funny thing about that is, like reading his book and talking about the cultural differences in the early days in the team. I think um, Gary Hughes's quote is really interesting. He said. Initially, I think what set him apart from the others was his non-drinking more than his religion or his racial background. That would have put some noses out of joint. They would have thought he was a snitch or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's so funny that it's like, you know, oh, yeah, whatever. He can play. So, yeah, yeah, welcome. You don't drink. <laughs> uh, but he went on to win the Bulldogs Rookie of the Year Award that year and obviously went on to have a, a long and very successful career. But when you think about the Bulldogs in 1996, it all comes down to one man, and that's Terry Lamb, the greatest ever Bulldog. So he was slated to retire at the end of 1995, and when it was looking like the Dogs were going to be short staff for 1996, he made the decision to come back. So uh, I'll let Terry tell the story. I said to my wife, if those blokes really do go, then I'm going to have to make a comeback to help the club. And then his wife said, you're mad. And then she said a lot of things that would show up as bleeps on your tape recorder. <laughs> Rugby Lee Wise are the greatest in that era. But there was a lot of talk when he came back that he was doing it for the money or, you know, like he just decided he needed to keep playing and, you know, people doubting his reasoning for coming back. And I think it's pretty clear that he wanted to retire and he came back just to help the team. And I love this from Bullfrog. This was in a Sun-Herald column by Ian Heads in 1996. They met before the court decided the future of the four. And Moore said to him, and what if they do play with the Bulldogs? If that happens, I won't be needed and I won't be playing, said Lamb. It was the answer I wanted to hear, said Moore. His motive was, and is exclusively, to do with the good of the club. It's really sad because... um... There's no better way to go out like Mel Meninga, you know, premiership winner and grand final, carried on the shoulders of your brothers when you come back for this bullshit season. It's it's a sad end. Well, I've got some thoughts on that, which I might save for a few moments, but not everyone was happy about Terry Lamb coming back. One young lady, uh, 24-year-old Lynette Morrow, had at the end of the year bought a commemorative jersey for $500 celebrating his last game. And... The story goes, uh, as reported by Steve Mascot in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think he's doing it for the money, said the computer operator who works for Fairfax. 
I spent $500 on something which marks his retirement, and now he's playing. The stats will be all wrong, and it just won't be a jersey from his final year. I called the manufacturers Blazed in Glory, and they said there was nothing they could do about it. They said last year was the end of his ARL career, and next year is Super League. But the point is, 1995 was not his last year. It's just hysterical that um, a lifelong fan that was going to spend $500 in 1995 money on a jersey now hates him. <laughs> I, I like it. I don't know if you remember. It was this year. It was probably like a few years after this that John Farnham announced his first farewell tour. Yeah. And then he came back and played more concerts like a year or so later. And there are all, all these reports of fans being outraged because they paid to see his last show. And it's like, well, if you're a fan, like, <laughs> uh, uh, isn't this good news? But I feel for the girl, but I mean, you got to know if you're a rugby league fan that um, there's a backflip <laughs> around every yeah, corner, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. You should wait till uh, round five of the next season before you buy that commemorative jersey. <laughs> and I should note, this is not the last time we'll be hearing about Blazed in Glory in this chapter. So... <laughs> Hold on to that. Are they going to be painted in glory or no? <laughs> well, there there are rugby league players involved in administration <laughs> of this company, so that that probably answers your question. <laughs> but th- like, there's a couple of things that really spell out what a true clubman he was in coming back. So Simon Gillies had already been announced as his replacement as captain. When it was announced Terry Lamb was coming back, you know, he didn't take the captaincy back. He played under Gillies. Gillies ended up suffering a season-ending injury halfway through the year. And again, Terry Lamb wasn't made captain. Darren Britt got the job because the club was thinking about its future and Terry Lamb knew that. He just wanted to be there to help them, not to come back for the glory. you got to admire it, man, like a true club man. Yeah. And the thing about it was he was still good enough. Like he wasn't in his prime and, you know, he wanted to be retired. But as it was coming in with unlimited interchange in 1996, the idea was that he'd be playing off the bench or he'd be, you know, having shorter stints on the field. But because of a, a big injury toll, that wasn't able to happen. So Bob Hagen said, It's been unbelievable. We intended to use him in line with the replacement rules. We wanted to use him more sparingly than the way we've used him. But we've been placed on the back foot because of certain injuries and we've needed to play him for much longer than we originally hoped. That doesn't shock me at all with Barr because the guy's just a natural footballer. He's got footballer DNA mixed in with his Bulldogs DNA. Yeah, yeah. Um, so once he's there to play, I can see him just playing 80. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it led to the familiar talk about uh, his training regime, to which Anderson said he hasn't trained for four years anyway, so we expect him to carry on as normal. <laughs> and just to emphasize how serious he was, about finishing his career in the right way. Chris Anderson said, he knows what he has to do. He's been drinking light beer. (laughs) Yeah, like it's the alcohol content, not the... uh... (laughs) But that was kind of the joking answer. So Lamb wasn't able to, you know, complete full training sessions with the team. He had his own regime, but he worked really hard at it. So he was, you know, running constantly. He gave up alcohol or or severely limited his intake uh, to which he said i hardly had a drink and you know how much i like one in the last year i was 35 and you can't escape the fact that you have to do extra work so even though the image of terry lamb is the the knockabout who doesn't train like the fact is you don't get to be the player terry lamb was without really putting in especially as an older player who doesn't have the same physical gifts 
Well, I mean, also the guy's four foot tall, so he has yeah. three beers and he puts on eight kilos. So, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, great discipline. So that leads us to the first weekend in September. Terry Lamb plays his last game at Belmore Oval, scoring two tries as the Dogs easily beat the Cowboys. It was a shocking weekend of weather in Sydney, which was true for much of the year. So I don't want to be giving the league a free pass, but I think it did have like a pretty significant influence on some of those atrocious crowds we saw. Was just the Adams family cloud of negativity and actual rain over the game. (laughs) So he plays his last game, only six and a half thousand people there. So I think that says something about how bad the weather was that weekend because you'd think for Terry Lamb's last game, you'd want a few more rolling up than that. Do you reckon Lynette was there? or <laughs> I'm sure she wasn't, but her near namesake, Lynn, as in Lynn Anderson, daughter of Bullfrog, wife of Chris, she was in attendance as the Bulldogs' marketing manager and she'd organised a special surprise for the occasion. Liaising with City Rail, she was able to get a banner installed on a Tangara to wish Terry Lamb well in retirement. For some of our overseas listeners, that might not make a lot of sense, but you see Belmore Oval backs directly onto a train line uh, and has (laughs) spectators on three sides, which I'm I'm pretty sure that Yankee Stadium's the same, isn't it? If that doesn't say at all about why Super League come about... But how funny that it's a Super League club that is doing this. But so Terry Lamb was brought off after a job well done with eight minutes to go, only for Lynn to go down and I don't know if she spoke directly to Chris or just told a trainer that he had to get back out there because the train was going to be coming through. So he needed to be on the field to witness it. As it turns out, the train was running late. So by by the time it did uh, roll past, Terry Lamb was in the dressing room, probably two full beers deep and didn't get to see the great banner that was (laughs) there in his honour, which um, you and I have seen a picture of the banner, which if you imagine those like signs you'll see on a highway overpass saying, you know, happy 21st birthday, Shane, I'd say it was half a step up from that in terms of quality. (laughs) There isn't a more poetic piece of this series than that. God. Sydney trains comes to the fore with their uh, <laughs> legendary scheduling. So with the train gone past, with the game over, it was a time of reflection. And I just wanted to quote a couple of tributes to Terry Lamb in the aftermath of this. So club stalwart Punchy Nelson said, Terry Lamb was the best club footballer I've ever seen. Words can't describe the incredible greatness of this little player. A wonderful clubman who inspired club spirit and who was a tough, fiercely competitive footballer on the playing field and a wonderful mate off the field. Chris Anderson said, One game against Parramatta, he couldn't run all week. He had a torn calf muscle. No way he could play, but he got out there and busted his ass, just gave everything he had. That year epitomized for me what Terry Lamb was all about. Some people said he should have retired the year before, but he finished off that year as he had all his life. The best clubman you've ever seen. A torn calf muscle. Mm. Think about the pain of that, Jesus. Yeah. And in his own words, talking about that season and why he did it and what it meant to him. Terry Lamb said, A lot of people told me, even my family, that they were disappointed in me coming back because I'd had such a great ending last year. They were disappointed because I could have an ordinary year this year. Trouble was, it didn't concern me. What concerned me was helping these players out here at Canterbury. I didn't make the decision as to what was best for me. I made it as to what was best for the club and the blokes. 
I know I made the right decision, and my family knows that as well. Yeah. In our Hall of Fame episode, we spoke about how we both didn't really appreciate him at the time, being younger mm. guys, but the older you get, the more you really respect his career. And he doesn't oh. get as much love as Alfie for the size of him. I mean, mm. Alfie's always like, oh, he was so little when he played above his weight with a big heart. Terry Lynn did exactly the same, if not more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not that he was that much older than Alfie, but also coming through in 1980 when like the game was like just so rough and yeah and like he was just up for every challenge but like Alfie a true rugby league man off the field too yeah 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 for sure but you mentioned like it's kind of a sad ending compared to what he could have had and I remember that at the time I remember a lot of talk about you know oh why did he come back he had the fairy tale ending but like for dog supporters and I'd argue probably Terry Lamb himself this ending is even better. The greatest player to ever play for the club winds up his career in a meaningless game on a rainy day at Belmore, watched on by some diehard fans, a beer in his hand in the dressing room as a late-running Lidcombe via Yaguna service goes past. <laughs> like, he's finally given everything his body had for the cause. His job's done. This is the fairy tale. You know what? The way you frame it, in this last 10 minutes, I've come around to it. It's um, it's very rugby league. It's very Terry Lamb. Like it says everything you need to know about the man and untold respect for Terry Lamb. And that is probably a good note to go out on. So we're going to be back in the next part of this chapter to look at some of the more successful teams of 1996. And we will see how the season goes from there. So thanks for listening. As always, we'd love to get your thoughts. Uh, send them to the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you're keen, sign up for our Patreon. We've got a lot of great stuff going on there. Um, but above all, thank you for listening and we will speak to you soon. Take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.